You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the BNH Photography Podcast. Our guest today is Shahadul Alam. He, of course, is a photojournalist. He's also the founder of a photo agency, a photo academy, and a photo festival in his native Bangladesh. He's a writer, an educator, a human rights activist, and one of Time Magazine's Persons of the Year for 2018. This time they got it right. Shadul is in New York to celebrate an exhibit of his photography at the Rubin Museum of Art. The show, Shahadul Alam, Truth to Power, opened on November 8th and will run until May 4th, 2020. It's a wonderful exhibit and provides a glimpse into his four-decade career. We also want to thank the Rubin Museum for inviting us to see the exhibit, and we also welcome our second guest, Dr. Lauren Walsh, a repeat guest. Lauren is an author and a scholar. Her latest book is Conversations on Conflict Photography, a powerful exploration of public responses to photographic coverage of war and humanitarian crises. In the book, she profiles none other than our guest today, Shahidul Alam, as well as many other photographers and editors. Walsh also runs the photojournalism lab at the NYU Gallatin School of Individualized Study and is the director of Lost Roles America, a national archive of photography and memory, which he discussed with us on a previous show. Welcome back. Okay, before we start, a little bit of background. Shahidul Alam was born and raised in Dhaka, Bangladesh. He studied in Liverpool and earned a PhD in chemistry from London University, all while taking up a newfound hobby, photography. He returned to Bangladesh in 1984 with the goal of using his photographic and public speaking skills to cover protest movements and advocate for social justice. In 1989, he helped to establish the award-winning Drick Picture Library and Majority World Picture Agency, and later the Pathshala South Asian Media Institute and Chobimila International Photography Festival. His photographs have been published in the New York Times, Time Magazine, and National Geographic, and he's exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art, the Tate Modern, and the Pompidou Center. His book, My Journey as a Witness, has been described as being the most important book ever written by a photographer. He's the recipient of the Lucy Award and Shilpakala Award, which is the highest cultural award given to Bangladeshi artists, as well as the only person of color to have chaired the prestigious International Jury of World Press Photo. It is an honor to have you here on our show today. Delighted to be here. My first question is, and I'm opening this up to both of you, what are some concrete steps that could protect journalists from the kind of repercussions of free speech that you've suffered or in or to ensure that any detained journalist gets the attention needed to grant their release? I think what happened is a very clear indicator of what can be done. Um, before I was arrested, several very high-profile people had been arrested in Bangladesh or uh, sent abroad on exile or made ineffective in other ways, and the government got gotten away with it. Um, in my case, suddenly... The whole world protested. There were protests in the streets and people in Bangladesh to greater risks. It was more dangerous for them. I think the fact that you can mobilize people at that level, the, the public solidarity and that international networking is very much part of the resistance. But somebody who doesn't quite have the, high, the profile that you might, uh, is it fair to say that they're not going to get that kind of attention and therefore they... they a release that came, or is this something that... Uh, Absolutely yeah. true, I think, which is why I think, sure, we as photographers do what we do, but building those networks is part of the strategy that one has to have. If if one has made a choice of becoming an activist, if one is going to talk truth through power, you recognize that there will be powerful enemies that you will pick up along the way. As we need to learn how to use a camera, how to use words, we also need to be able to recognize that that part of social activism is part of the skill sets that needed. I, th I think it also just goes beyond journalism. I think the public needs to better understand the value of journalism so that when we hear the president of the United States responding to legitimate reporting and calling it fake news, 
we need to push back against that. Um, I mean, the Committee to Protect Journalists, among other organizations, has tracked and is telling us that imprisonments are at record highs, and I, I think we have to listen to this and learn from it. Other things also happen. I mean, today, my Facebook, well, yesterday, my Facebook account got hacked, and it's something that's been happening. When I got arrested, the police got hold of my laptop, my mobile phones, and they had access to all my social media. I've been able to recover most of them. Twitter, sadly, I've not. Um, um, perhaps Twitter can, can intervene here. But it's there. I've been told there's an active team dedicated to hacking me constantly. So you need to counter it at many levels uh, and really have a much broader team working. Before we go any further, well, could we just back up? We're talking about that you were arrested uh, in 2018. Could you give us the background of what led up to your arrest and what you were doing? Who'd you take off? On the 29th of July, two students, Meem and Rajib, uh, were run over by a bus. Of course, it's very sad, but what it led to was a countrywide protest. And I, I feel it was because we were on a tinderbox. Um, people were enraged with the corruption, with the nepotism, with the repression, the looting of the banks, all the things that were going on. And this was a spark that led to it. Now, people get hit by buses every day. What was different about this event? It wasn't so much that it was different. It was, A, that it happened when it did, and B, the response. The the minister laughed it off. Uh, he said, well, exactly as he said, people get run over every day. What's the big deal? And that was really the thing that lit, uh, that enraged people. But what happened in return was actually very, very interesting. The students took to policing the streets and brought order into streets that we've never had order in. They found that ministers were driving around with unlicensed vehicles, uh, policemen went around who didn't have driver's licenses and things like that. And what they did was they ensured that ambulances got through and VIPs didn't <laughs> if they didn't have the right authorization. And they pointed fingers to the government in the sense that if untrained students in the streets with zero resources can run the streets well, what is this government doing? So I was reporting on that. And then the government hacks turned violent. They started attacking the students. I was documenting that too. So that's when I got attacked. On the 4th of August, I got beaten. My equipment smashed up. I continued reporting. On the 5th of August, this is 2018, I gave an interview to Al Jazeera. I was at that time alone in the flat talking to the BBC because I was going to do a report for them the following day. Uh, the doorbell rang. Uh, I answered the door. And suddenly a whole, about, I don't really know, but I'm told that around 30 security people came in. I know what happens in Bangladesh. And because I was alone in the flat, I wanted to make sure that I didn't go quietly. So I made as much noise as I could. I resisted as much as I could. And perhaps that those extra minutes that I gained was what saved my life. You were talking about being on Facebook at that point, and we were just talking about these ideas. What about this idea of, of pressuring these giant organizations, Twitter, as you mentioned, and Facebook, to to do their part to ensure the safety of journalists that are using their platforms. Completely. I mean, I think they are not only social media platforms, they are publishing platforms today. Uh, and therefore, they can be used and abused. And they are abused. What, for me, is very worrying is what I hear, the fact that our government have relationships with some of these bigger organizations where they are allowed the back door. So in our case, it's particularly... Uh, worrying because very recently there's been these reports through Pegasus that activists have actually been targeted uh, using surveillance technology. And this is one of my bones of contention. I mean, while we have governments which talk about freedom and democracy, it's the same governments that are selling surveillance technology to my government, which is preying on activists. Obviously, it's a live question right now, right? Um, especially with Facebook Will they at some point down the road be legally responsible for user-generated content because 
they aren't just a platform. They are a publisher as well. I mean, I think until then, the cyber training for journalists is incredibly important because harassment happens. Um, and there aren't really, there are organizations that are putting together guidelines and standards like ACOS Alliance, but there aren't a lot of, there aren't international standards for cyber or security standards. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can take a, a step backwards a little bit. I, I wanted to ask a, a bit about your, your education and training in the hard sciences. Um, and, and, Maybe you can give us a little bit of background on how that transition happened into photography and, and where in your life at that point the, the role of activism played. Uh, but um, is there anything from that training that, that you've kept with you all these years uh, that affects or enables your photography or, or something you utilize as a photojournalist? There are two segments to your question, and I'll split them up. The first, about how it happened. I'm from a middle-class home, and... Young men from middle-class homes are expected to get respectable professions, which, at least according to my parents... Podcast uh, hosts. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, my mom's proud. (laughs) Doctors, engineers, uh, lawyers, whatever. You know, when my mom discovered I was going to be a photographer, she was horrified. (laughs) How am I going to find a bride for him? You know, that was her main concern. (laughs) My first mother-in-law had the same concerns. (laughs) So... Uh, you know, that's that's what went through. So I got into university, getting into, you know, I studied biochemistry and genetics at Liverpool University. Then I started my PhD in organic chemistry. But while I was doing that, I got involved with the Socialist Workers' Party. And it was while I was with them that I began to be involved in race rights, gay rights, in class issues, and a whole range of things which were about social justice. And at that time, it was the Solidarność movement for the liberation of Poland. And I could see how they were using images to maximum effect. And I thought, hey, this is a tool. Yeah. Um, and I began to think, does, does Bangladesh need yet another research chemist? But I thought with a camera, I could probably achieve something that would bring about a change. So that was my conscious decision about doing what I was doing. And your, but your thoughts always were to go back to Bangladesh, regardless of, of how you Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 completely. I mean, that, that's home. That continues to be my home. Mm-hmm. I'm out on bail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still face a potential jail sentence of 14 years, but that's where I'm going to go. Uh, um, I have no options there. Uh, but in terms of what it does, I think it's not so much the technical skills that you learn, but the process, the fact that you recognize problem solving, that you have an analytical approach, that you can deconstruct the situation, reduce it to the elements that are needed. You can identify the weak links. Uh, You can identify the rate-limiting steps. Those are all standard parameters that apply across the board. And education always has a value. What was your contact with Bangladesh while you were overseas uh, and, and basically getting your education and everything else. How, how often did you go back and did you monitor what was going on? I mean, because there's something to be said about being able to step back and look at a situation more globally, but there's also value to be right up front and looking at it from a macro point of view. Did you have a good balance or was it just hunch? I didn't have a good balance. I'd left home when I was 17 uh, and this was before internet. Uh, And I certainly didn't have the money to go back home in between. So I was working my way through. I was working as a laborer, day laborer, trying to earn my way through university. But of course, letters still existed and I stayed in touch. What was very important for me was the fact that I'd been through this war of liberation. And there were these people back there who I'd left behind. I knew what so many people had sacrificed their lives for. Uh, So there was that hunger to go back and play my role. I stayed in touch, obviously, in whatever way I could, but there was a gap. There were very, very important transition years. And because of that gap, when I came back in 1984 and discovered that a general had taken over my country, I thought, this is not the country we fought for. And it was imperative for me to bring it back. 
Now, I'd heard a story that the camera that you first started shooting with was something you bought for a friend. And, uh, <laughs> yes, that was... <laughs> Is that, that a true was, story? <laughs> absolutely. I mean, this was while I was at university. Mm. Freddie Laker introduced Laker Airways, which mm. was the budget airline. Oh, yeah. Uh, you could get a flight from London to New York on what they called the SkyTrain for 90 pounds. Uh-huh. And I thought, I, you know, I'm a poor student. This is my chance to go to the United States. So I was about to buy that ticket. And this friend of mine at a university said, you know, the dollar's low. The US is a good place to buy cameras. Why don't you buy me one? So I turned up. This was before B&H, but uh, <laughs> I still found uh, you know, the cheap shops which sold good, decent cameras. <laughs> so I bought an Econifer. That's our new slogan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so uh, I bought an Econ FM, a rickety tripod, uh, a flash gun. I had a sleeping bag and a tent. Mm-hmm. I hitched around the United States. Those were the days you could still hitchhike. Sure. So I hitched around the United States and Canada and took some pictures with me. I came back to London. My mate didn't have the money to pay for the camera, so I stuck with it. Wow. It was a very happy accident. I'd say so. I'd say so. For all of us. So, Lauren, you, you've written a book, Conversations on Conflict Photography, and, and Shahid Dal is uh, one of the people you profile. Can you maybe speak a little bit about the conversations that you had and, and maybe distinguish it a bit from some of the other photographers that you spoke to uh, for the book? Sure. So the book, it's a series of interviews with uh, photographers who've covered conflict around the world and then photo editors. And then also I did interviews with major human rights and humanitarian organizations because they're leading funders and distributors of conflict imagery. Um, In terms of distinguishing the perspectives, I mean, it was very important to me to have a diverse breadth of voices in the book. I mean, really what I wanted to do was give voice to the people who make and distribute this kind of imagery. And I wrote a few essays that contextualize it, but um, I was looking at it from a an American or a Western point of view and thinking about how do we respond to images of crisis or suffering or war that come to us from far away. So I wasn't looking at domestic conflicts. Um, and I, with that in mind, the, the history of photojournalism is more male than not and more Western than not. So this book was very conscious in saying I want to speak with male and female practitioners. I want to speak with – I want to have Western and non-Western voices. So the the anecdotes and experiences that the photographers relate, um, they carry some of these differences with them, right? I can speak to Shahidul about – what does it mean to be a local photographer and what were your experiences? I mean, you talked to me about the, the cyclone and what happened with coverage for New York Times. Um, and then I would ask similar questions of, you know, American photographers to say, well, what does it mean for you to fly to somewhere in Africa to document a famine or a war? So it was each interview is distinguished insofar as it is the role of conflict imagery from that one person's experiences and perspectives and because everyone brings a different perspective, you get these, it's really a polyphony of voices and experiences. And I, I spoke to people who've been covering for up to 40 years. So it's kind of also a history of the world mm. um, inside 300 pages. Right, right, right. And, and is it fair to say that we are seeing maybe a, a change toward um, a type of photojournalism that, that, that respects the locals who are doing, you know, who are actually involved with the the event that uh, previously photographers might have been flown in to cover, uh, or is that something that still needs a lot of work? I think if we look back over the decades, there are absolutely more local photographers who are working. There's a number of reasons for this. Um, the gear is it's not as hard to get. We also have the rise of citizen journalism, um, which opens a whole set of questions because then... Are you trained in the same journalistic standards that a news-consuming audience would expect? I still think there's a definite imbalance um, in terms of, especially, and Shahidul and I were talking about this, who has the ability to get their, let's say, images, if we're talking photography, images out through some of the most powerful media entities in the world. Um, I mean, I think some of the wire services are working a lot more with local photographers, but then that opens a whole set of questions of, um, local photographers face greater risks. Mm-hmm. Um, if, repercussions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have an American passport, 
you can leave a country if things start to go really wrong. It's a lot harder if you're the local Afghani photographer or the local Mexican photographer. Um, so I, yeah, I think there have been many strides forward and I think there's still quite a bit of work to be done. On that same note, do you find that your experiences overseas with higher education and exposure to Europe and the United States is helping you when you go back now as opposed to somebody of equal skill to you who's never left Bangladesh, who doesn't have the worldliness that you do have? Of course. Uh, I think it's, you know, I'm here talking to you on BNH today because of some of those connections. There are perfectly competent, great photographers out there whose work has never been seen. One of the things we've done is built an archive uh, and within that collected the work of great photographers whose work should be known. Uh, what many people do not know about, for instance, is that the War of Liberation of 1971 was not only a seminal event in terms of world history, but also a seminal event in terms of world photographic history. The greats of photojournalism were all there. Mary Ellen Mark, David Burnett, Don McCullen, Bruno Barbe, Depardo, Raghurai, Abbas, Rashid Talukdar, Aftab Hussein. They were all there. Yet, it's, there's never been a collection of that work. There's never been an exhibit. And until we began collecting it, this had never been assimilated. Uh, and that has many reasons. I mean, I'm cynical at, at times, and I sort of think we got independent at the wrong time. We, mm -hmm. we got independence on the 16th of December, which was just too close to Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and in the middle of a, a war in Southeast Asia, obviously. You know, yes, to, all of that. Yeah. But, you know, this is before the internet or digital yeah. in analog days. Page spreads and things are set out. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of doing to dislodge Christmas. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about, about the direct picture, the library, and... and when you realized that was something that was kind of fundamental to the, to the purpose that you were going for, as opposed to just taking your own pictures and doing your best to get them out there? I was having a show in Belfast, mm -hmm. um, and I was staying with friends in Newry, which is a town quite close to Belfast, and they, they didn't have a big house, so they had a little daughter, Karina, five-year-old, uh, and Karina went to mum and dad's room to make room for Uncle Shahidul. So I'm there, I come in from the show one day, I'm emptying my pockets, putting some coins on the table. And Karina's standing at the doorway. Uh, usually, she runs up to me, jumps to my lap, and we tell each other stories. But that day, she just stood there. And I said, what's the matter, Karina? She says, you've got money? I said, yes, I've got money. And goes, but, but you're from Bangladesh. And she could make it fit. And it got me thinking about the sort of social, political, cultural space within which a five-year-old grows up where she's incapable of seeing a Bangladeshi as anything other than an icon of poverty. And I got to thinking, you know, it has to do with who controls the narrative. Uh, and there is this beautiful African expression which goes something like, until the lions find their storytellers, stories about hunting will always glorify the hunter. And I thought, well, it's about time the lions found their storytellers. And I knew by then I'd worked with agencies overseas and I knew how the dissemination worked. And I thought, okay, we need to build up an agency. But we decided not to open it in the conventional places of Paris, London, or New York, but to set it up in Bangladesh because that's where the photographers were. But there were challenges to go with that as well. I mean, as I say, this is way before internet or whatever. So what many people don't realize is we introduced email to Bangladesh in the early 90s <laughs> because we, having decided we would be in the backwaters, we then needed that lifeline. So we actually introduced email and built a South-South network globally through which we could disseminate our work. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow, okay. We're spoiled. We are definitely spoiled. No two ways about it. Um, yeah. I was going through Lauren's book and, and the text is amazing and the photographs are very, very powerful. And you've been working on this project for about 10 years now, and you're looking at a lot of photographs of, of conflict, and they're not always pretty. And, and I'll open this question to both of you. How do these pictures affect you after a while? Do you have to step back? Because it could really become powerful to look at this stuff. I just, in sitting here going through the book for 10 minutes, I was moved good ways and bad ways. 
you live with this. Do you need to take breaks from it? Or how do you process all this? Um, so the book was four years, but I've been working in this on this topic broadly, complex photography, for about 10. Um, yes, I, I have gotten more able to look at some kind of quote-unquote hard images. And usually that means graphic or violent images. And I, I think of it akin to the way a, a surgeon grows over time, right? So you start out as a medical student and at some point you have to do a dissection of a human body. And I imagine that that is very difficult the first time you have to put a scalpel to skin. And I imagine it's difficult the second time and then it gets easier and easier. And if I needed to have surgery, I don't want a surgeon who isn't capable of doing it in a very confident, not squeamish way, right? They have to get used to what they're doing. So in that sense, um, I think there are some images that other people would find very graphic and it's easier for me to look at them, some kinds of um, like certain kinds of, let's say a gunshot wound. Um, the images that for me never seem to lose that punch to the stomach are when I see pictures of children in enormous pain um, or severely malnourished or when I see pictures of children who are dead and the parents are somewhere in the frame of the child of the in that same frame because the parents are almost always if not always the agony is is written into their faces it's it just seems the most devastating thing that could happen to someone so i find those very they continue to be powerful images and i thought about this um in putting together the book there's a balance between some hard graphic imagery there's there's beautiful images in this book as well. There's beautifully serene images, including one by Shahidul, where you have to understand it in context to realize, actually, this is very, very haunting, the crossfire photograph. So in terms of how do you deal with it, I think recognizing that images can be painful and talking. I mean, I, I certainly talk to colleagues and uh, photographer friends about I, I find that actually just talking about it and acknowledging it is helpful for me and and helpful for others and because I don't want to in fact become numb to someone else's pain I don't want to ever get to a point where I can look at someone's extreme suffering and say mm, it doesn't matter to me anymore and you, you talked about that as somewhat being seed for the book itself yes. some responses you got from students when you showed them you know painful images and they just didn't really want to bother yeah, the, yeah the entire book started because um of an episode in one of my classes at NYU where we were, it was a course on conflict imagery and ethics. Um, and so we were asking questions like, what does it mean to look at someone else's suffering? And we were studying a famine that happened in Sudan in the early 1990s. And so the students read about the history of it. They read about the political forces. They looked at the photographic coverage of it and they read the critiques of the coverage. And they came into class and I was just about to start the lecture, and I put up the first image, which was from their assigned work. And it's a photo, it's a black and white, it's at um, a feeding center in Sudan, and it shows a man who is severely, severely emaciated. I mean, really skin and bones, um, and he's too weak to stand, so he's crawling on the ground. And I think it's a, I think it's an image that sh really confronts you with what can happen to the human form, like in a, in a very terrible circumstance. And so I was just about to start speaking, and a student raised his hand and said, Professor, I know why you're putting that picture up, but it's such a downer, and I have plans tonight, and I don't feel like I should be made to feel bad by looking at it. I have nothing to do with his suffering. So the book then <laughs> became, uh, I, I initially I froze, right? Like I didn't know what to do because um, I'd never had a student say something like that. It's not, it's not even a required class. Like they all have elected to be in that class. Um, but I thought about his response more and more, and it was actually after um, having a conversation with a photographer friend who covers conflict around the world and telling him the anecdote, and I thought he was going to say something like, millennials are so selfish, or that was so obnoxious. And he said the opposite. He said, I'm not sure why you're surprised. It's not provocative. I hear this all the time. So that was when I thought, okay, well, if that is a response, then... The first question I was asking was, well, then what's the point of this kind of imagery? 
and I personally think there is tremendous value to documenting conflict. Um, and so then the book became um, this endeavor to understand how do you do this work, like speaking, giving voice to the practitioners. How do you do this work? Why do you do this work? What successes and failures do you encounter? And I was very interested in continuing the line that had started in my classroom, which was thinking about all the ethical components of work, especially when you're in settings that are, in, in some cases, life or death. In, in your book, you have the photograph, there's one picture in particular of, of the uh, Boston Marathon bombing. One of the survivors being wheeled off, his foot is straight out, and below the knee, you just see a shin bone sticking out and some muscle. And the it was published just cropped just before the knee because the editors thought that it was just a little bit too graphic and a little bit too bloody. How, how do you deal with that? I mean, where, where do you draw lines? How do you push? Well, I, I'd like to maybe just jump in here real quick to say that, I mean, in your exhibit, there are, there are very few violent images. True. Although you're That's covering right. conflict and war and social unrest. Um, do you feel, do you find that it's necessary to show the abject violence in order to make the point you want to make? And, and over the years of seeing how your photos have been reacted to, do you find one or another doing more, as it were? Well, Lauren was referring to a particular body of work called Crossfire, which is about extrajudicial killings. And when I started doing the work, uh, I considered what should be the imagery because uh, would showing more bodies uh, actually add to either our information or our response to it? Um, and we decided to take a very different position. Uh, there were tactical reasons as well. I mean, in the sense, I, I live and work in a very repressive environment and I want to make sure that my work can slip in, uh, that I can actually show my work. So we did extensive research uh, and then we decided to produce images based on what we assumed would be the last sight of the dying person. But we did some certain things which uh, contextualized it. For instance, uh, all the deaths, all the killings had taken place in the dead of night. So every photograph was taken at that point in time, early hours of the morning or whenever the killing had taken place. We talked to the family members who'd survived and they said, well, the first thing we saw were these torches being shone on my face. So every picture has been lit by torchlight. So there are very subtle things which it's only when you begin to deconstruct that image you realize is that element within it. But that show has until now been the most successful show we've ever had including the fact that when the government closed it down, we took the government to court and we were able to get the show reopened. It's been shown in major festivals. It's been on the front cover of Amnesty, Human Rights Watch. And it has been a tool for activism for many people who've begun to use it. Now, I I once remember having a conversation with Christian Kajol, uh, I think it was in Barcelona, where he was talking about how... It, we were wondering whether had Eugene Smith been alive today, he would, he would have photographed Pittsburgh the same <laughs> way as he did then. Uh, we don't know for sure. But I, I would like to think that he would have found a different way of telling the story because the landscape, the media landscape has shifted. The language of Chaucer and Shakespeare and Dickens and Salman Rushdie and Arundhati Roy are all very, very different. Each appropriate for a particular point in time. Yet as photographers, we've often felt that we'd be purists and this is the only way to render a, and produce an image. The fact that people respond differently, that the environment is different, is something we need to respond to. But to come back to your question about uh, what is happening, I think what drives me is the knowledge that while we're here sitting in this lovely studio at B&H, there are people dying out there. There are people being disappeared. There are people facing horrendous consequences for standing up for their rights. And while that is happening, this is not an academic exercise. It is not an ex exhibition or a project of some sort. This is about people's lives. And if that's the case, that gives you the adrenaline. 
I think just on that point, though, um, I mean, the questions that you were asking, Alan, those are some of the things that I really wanted, um, and it, it comes up a lot in the section of interviews with the photo editors, right? What is too graphic, and how do you define, quote-unquote, too graphic? Are you giving more dignity to, let's say, the American victim versus the black or brown body from another part of the world? How are you treating the subjects in the photographs? Um, and these kinds of questions of what we see and what we don't see. So that's all kind of connected to the question you raised before. And in terms of graphic imagery, you know, the photograph of um, the victim's name from the Boston Marathon bombing is Jeff Bauman, and it really is a very graphic photograph. Um, and if one of your goals is, as a news entity, is to get people to engage with, to look at the image and read about it, with with very graphic imagery, you do run the risk of like revulsion, right? It's it's mm -hmm. too much, and people then and you've kind of lost your newsreader. I I personally think there are times when um, the the very graphic image should still be taken, right? And it may not need to be published in the newspaper, but um, the interview, let's say with. Human Rights Watch talks about this, or there's a photograph by Ron Haviv in the book, the picture of ethnic cleansing. I mean, it's it's paramilitary standing over the bodies of executed civilians, and it's a photograph that well, that one was published quite widely, but it's also a photograph that came back later on to be used to prosecute, to indict and prosecute criminals. And I think in that sense, sometimes the graphic imagery, um, the graphic imagery that isn't, let's say, used initially as journalism can be used as evidence in exactly. courts of law. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good point. And we know which photograph you're referring to. Yeah, yeah that's and I, I wanted to mention also about your sh the the show Crossfire and this idea that you know the 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 viewer needs to understand the context and therefore is engaged more with this this series, and therefore it might be more effective simply because they are engaged as opposed to that very graphic image that they may look at for a second and look away. You know what I mean? So obviously. It, the viewer is key to any kind of uh, But I think we uh, also activism. need to, to go beyond that. And, uh, and I, I speak as an activist. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'm not trying to produce the perfect image. I'm trying to produce the most effective image. Uh, and at the end of the day, it is not merely the image, but how it is used. And with Crossfire, for instance, we've, we've had it in conventional magazines that British Journal of Photography and other traditional photographic outlets, but it's also gone to museums, it's gone to uh, galleries, it's, it's been used by activists in the streets, and it's been used on the cover of Amnesty and Human Rights Watch. So that multiplicity of use is not something that lends itself to every image. And perhaps certain images are better able to overcome those barriers. I also, it, I just, I found it so fascinating and I think it's really worth pointing out um, that because the book <laughs> covers the kind of the history of the world, I, I worked with a fact checker um, to to fact check everything and we learned in the process that after Shahidul's cro show, Crossfire, was up in Bangladesh, the number of extrajudicial killings by this killing force went down. Mm. Shine a light. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, a question that has slightly to do with this. Uh, do, do you think that like newspapers, traditional, even online news agencies are, are the most effective way still for underrepresented stories to be told? I mean, you spoke about a, a show at a mosque and uh, you have a show at a museum. Uh, and obviously there are many now non-traditional, let's say, ways to get images out there. Even a poster on a street that somebody may be carrying. Do you think that the the... We're kind of over this this kind of the mass, let's say, mass journalism. Uh, is it still effective? Is it still useful for the types of stories that you want to tell? I don't think there is one answer. Hmm. And I, I think that in itself is what needs to do. You need to take every situation and work best to it. And I think we need that plurality. You know, the online spaces, the traditional spaces, social media, word of mouth, all of that are valid. Um, and some work better in certain situations than others. Um, I I work in, a, in an environment where, let's say, in Bangladesh, for instance, the printed newspaper 
is still increasing circulation, which is exactly the opposite of what's happening out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, It will change. Mm-hmm. There will be a time when that will shift. But until it does, I will recognize the fact and that it's will, will your photos or photos of your colleagues that you respect who are working in, on these, these stories, will they find their way into a Bangladeshi newspaper? That will depend very much upon what, what, how we've arranged to do it because some of it is not even about the newspaper. There's, you may know of this very famous Pulitzer-winning picture of Michelle Laura of the bayoneting of the Biharis in Bangladesh. Now, Rashid Talukdar, one of our photographers, also took a very strong picture at that time. He never published it because publishing it would be equivalent to signing his own death warrant. The people who did the bayoneting were still very much in control. It was only in 1993, 22 years later, I was able to convince him that it was now safe to publish that picture. Uh, so those are part of what happens. You know, you you need to negotiate that space. But I think one of the things where we have lost out as photographers is we to a large extent, have felt that the photographic image is all there is to it. I think many other things happen to happen, be around it. Contextualizing it is important. I think it's vital that photographers be writers. I think we, as storytellers, need to find multiple ways of telling stories, of engaging. And once we're able to do that, our work then becomes so much more usable by by the media itself. It's when it's a unipolar single image standing on its own. It has limited potential. When we were at the uh, museum earlier, you brought up something that was kind of interesting where you were going to be putting a show in a mosque and you were getting a lot of pushback about that. And the way you explained things to them changed things around. Could you go over that again? Because I thought that was a very amazingly, it was a very good tactic that you used. Well, I, I live and work in Bangladesh um, where many people think photographs are haram. You know? uh, for instance, if there's a funeral, the photographs will be turned uh, turned around because it's not considered proper for photographs to be there in a religious situation. I had shows in synagogues and churches and temples. I'd never shown in a mosque because it was considered impossible to do. And I'm very conscious of Islamophobia, of xenophobia, and the perceptions about Islam. And I wanted to address that. At the same time, I also wanted places like mosques to become known for what their true potential is. Um, So the first challenge was convincing the mosque that I could show work in it. It's a very beautiful mosque, by the way. It won the Aga Khan Award for Architecture, designed by a woman. The land was donated by her grandmother. So there were those elements to it as well. Um, And um, I took photographs. But before even I started taking photographs, I spoke to the mosque committee and told them why I wanted to do it. And I reminded them of how Prophet Muhammad had used his mosque. The fact that his mosque in Medina was an education center, a cultural center, a community center, uh, a hospital. It sheltered women. He met state dignitaries in the mosque. But there was an art troupe from Abyssinia who came and said to the prophet, where can we show? We have no place to show our work. And he said, show it in my mosque. It became a gallery. If during the Prophet's time, a, ga- a mosque could have such a wonderfully diverse range of usage. Why have we reduced, and it's not just for, true for mosques, it's true of places of prayer in a sense. I think religion has been reduced to very clinical actions about which have to do with praying and proselytizing and all those sort of things, whereas it is part of human life. And we've forgotten that. So that is a show I'm now trying to show while this Rubin show is going on, perhaps in mosques around the country. Mm, good idea. Speaking of the Rubin show, can we talk a little bit about that and how you organized it? You mentioned that uh, it, it's organized as a kind of trilogy. Is that true? Or there is I, one show within that. One aspect the of it is a trilogy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's what I expected necessarily, the whole show. I mean, there's kind of a retrospective aspect, of, uh, but there's also... 
you're dealing with certain sp- particular stories within this. Can you talk a little bit about a couple of those? Uh, uh, yeah, the the Rubin show, it's billed as a retrospective, but there's only so much you can show. So right. there are significant chapters which are not there. For instance, Crossfire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we've tried to do are two things. One is look at the trajectory of my attempt for social justice, which is under, underpins the entire show, but also the various vocabularies that I've tried to use from traditional black and white photo reportage as Magnum and other agencies would have done to fine art conceptual work and places where I've ensured that the politics of my work is embedded within the artwork itself because one of the things that had happened in the very first body of work which I did, which is called The Struggle for Democracy, uh, I was looking at politics, um, the resistance to General Ishad, and there is a sequence of pictures which are about a flood that had taken place. It was the biggest flood in a century. And juxtaposed with that is are the photographs of a wedding, a hugely opulent mm-hmm. wedding that had taken place. It was the daughter of a very powerful minister. Now, the juxtaposition made it very stark because here was this wedding taking place at a time when the nation is reeling under those floods. Uh, that made it difficult because that was what scared off my sponsors for mm-hmm. a start. <laughs> <laughs> and I stopped getting, gal- none of the galleries would be prepared to show the work. So that led to a whole different set of things. That but, taught you a lesson. <laughs> yes, completely. We <laughs> built our own gallery. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's it's looked at politics with a bit P, but also uh, class divides, gender issues, environmental issues, military occupation, a whole range of things that were covered within that work. But later on, I've looked at things like disappearance. Uh, I We talked about the Crossfire show. The, the show about the Kalpana um, Chakma, this indigenous uh, woman who was picked up by the military on the 12th of June 1996, for me was very significant because we had fought our war for the right to speak our language. Yet within our own nation, we were denying other people to speak theirs. And that for me was so staggering. The word indigenous is something that cannot be used. It's been banned by our constitution. You cannot use the word indigenous in Bangladesh. So I I began uh, on the 12th of June, 2013, and the next two years on the 12th of June, producing a new body of work. The first body I did was using forensic techno- technology to look at what I considered the silent witnesses. So I collected objects along the path of our last journey and photographed them. Just to, to clarify, this was a, a young woman who was disappeared. She she was She was picked up by the military on the night of the 12th of June, 1996. Mm-hmm. And what was her offense? She was an activist. She wanted rights for her people. Okay. And um, so, on, and the investigation is still ongoing. And I thought, well, if you've got to do an investigation, what do you do? Right at the beginning, you do the forensic study. Uh, and, the words of Bangalis like me and the military were taken into account, but the Bahari voices were never heard. So I thought I would interrogate these silent witnesses. And it's it's work that I did in, initially in Bangladesh, then in Britain, then in Germany, eventually in Australia, uh, and produced those uh, high-magnification images through fluorescent photography. I then did another body of work where I tried to show the person and we were talking earlier on about how you felt that there was actually a person there. Mm. Yes. And I the, still want to go back because <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced there was somebody there. I don't care what you say. <laughs> so, uh, and the next body of work was about the champions uh, of Kolpana, the people who've carried on right. the fight, which includes my partner, which includes Sarah Hussein, who's the lawyer who who stood up for me once I was in jail, mm-hmm. and Saidia Gulrook, again, someone who I've been working with for a long time. Can I ask what, with, sorry to interrupt, but the the motivation to take on this story in this manner with the forensic foot photography styling, was that something that you felt was born from the story itself, or was it something that you said, you know what, I, this is something I'd like to do as a photographer. I'd like to investigate in this terms and, and use 
you know, a different set of skills? Well, my my partner had actually asked me a very pertinent question. Uh, she sort of said, let me ask you a silly question, <laughs> yeah? Isn't it all in your imagination? <laughs> you know, you're saying all this. Of course, it was in my imagination. But I felt through that imagination I could unlock some doors. And there were two things I wanted to do. One was point out that the process of investigation was flawed, seriously flawed. But also, here's a person, and there are no photographs of this woman. Uh, this has happened at, when I was doing the work. It had happened, what, uh, 16 years ago, 17 years ago. You know, what am I going to photograph 17 years after the event? And I thought, there are still people, there are still objects that can speak to me. And of course, as a photographer, I need something visual. So I needed to find a visual way of rendering this story. So that's how it began. But then I thought the other challenge is we need to bring her alive. This is a woman who was flesh and blood, who was picked away, taken away from us. This is my sister who no longer exists. I need to bring back my sister. So the next body of work, which is where you thought she was there. Mm -hmm. She is, is there. I'm sorry. I'm not, <laughs> well, so in that sense, I've been successful. <laughs> but the third one, which uh, was on the straw mats, actually had to do with a broader range of issues because we have now begun a campaign called No More. As the name suggests, these are things we think society should not tolerate. And we began it with work about the garment accidents that are taking place in Bangladesh. We did it in Kalpana Chakma. We've continued with Crossfire and all these other things. So in that particular story, we wanted to include something about the garment industry within the work. And the process of doing the work itself was significant because something had happened very early on. When I showed that first work on struggle for democracy, you know, the, there's the wedding pictures and there's the flood pictures and everyone turns it down. There was a magazine that published a review of that, mag uh, of that work. Interestingly, the owner of the magazine was the wife of the minister. And I thought, what's going on here? This is this minister I've been critiquing and whatever, and his wife does. And it was a beautiful review. But then you take a step back and you find in the review they talk about the artistry of my work, the compositions, the subtlety, the strength of my black and white photography, completely obliterating the political content. They're going to an art show. Well, exactly. Exactly. And this is the trap that we find ourselves in. You know, you can be your nice little artist. We'll give you some funding. We'll give you a nice gallery. We'll, you'll have a great show. Let's leave the politics out of it. And I decided... I would ensure that my politics could not be separated from my art. And in this final work where I produced the work in a manner where the fire that burned those villages is used to burn those straw mats. The carbon in that straw mat is my pixel. And the entire process also involves the garment industry and all those sort of things. So when you look at that image and try and understand that image, you take all of that political background in. You know, as we mentioned earlier, you spent a couple months in jail last year, and it's almost a, a, almost a year to the day since your release. Um, I guess this is kind of a big question that I'll break down into a couple things. Uh, how, um, uh, how was it to be, in some sense, the focus of the news, the story of the news, as opposed to somebody covering the news? Uh, how did that work for you? Um, and how was it to not be able to document with a camera in the time that you were in jail? Uh, or even in the time afterwards, I'm assuming it took you a little bit to get your gear back somehow. Uh, or get new gear. And then obviously maybe a year later, any any kind of... I'll start with the second yeah. question sure. first. Um, when I was a student, you know, you had money problems. Mm -hmm. Students have money problems. Um, those were analog days. You had to buy film, you had to process film. It was expensive. I mean, camera's expensive today, but you know, at that time, the actual film itself... Right. Uh, so I used to go around taking pictures without film in my camera. <laughs> I would take pictures all day. I've done that. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and of course, these Purposely. are the pictures. Uh, and you went through, as you need to 
A gymnast needs to train himself or herself. A musician needs to do the vocals. You, you practice the chords. Uh, this is part of the gymnastics that a photographer needs to do. You look at images, you breathe images, you l imagine the images that you've missed out and all that. Stuff. So I would go around all day taking pictures without a single roll of film. No, that, when I began my work, I did these stories on the missing and the disappeared. Now, photography is very good at rendering what is in front of you, the visual. It's not as good at photographing the missing, the invisible. Uh, it's not a natural medium for photographing what is absent. But it can be done, and I, I was doing that for some time. While I was in jail, the camera itself was missing. So then I had to find a way of how do I tell this story when it's not there itself. There were two things I did. The first had nothing to do with me. I managed to convince, uh, not I on my own, together with other prisoners, we were able to convince the wardens to allow paintbrushes and paint. And the prisoners painted murals, 35 huge murals. It's like a museum inside the jail. It's dramatic. Um, but I began to use words. I mean, I do write. I, I interviewed people extensively while I was there. I made copious notes. But when I came out, I started working with my niece, Sophia Karim, who's an architect, to producing 3D models of, uh, of the jail and of the situations I'd been in based on my memory. We decided not to do it from architectural drawings or Google Maps, but to use my memory, which is amorphous. And that... That amorphous nature, I felt, was part of it because this, these were two artists talking to one another. The models were very exacting. I was looking at them, and, and I'm surprised to hear you. it's from your memory. It looks like they were taken from actual line drawings of the plans. There are very interesting things in there. For instance, there are the sparrows I used to feed. Yeah? And that was what I had. You know, the, the sparrows were free. They had flight. They were outside. Uh, and I, I started feeding them, and you didn't have anything there. So fellow prisoners smuggled in cardboard boxes, which I cut up to make a little platform for them, and I would save a little bit of my breakfast for the sparrows, and they would come in and flit inside. I took down the mosquito net from my window to allow them in. I, I was prepared to put up with mosquito bites so I could have my <laughs> sparrow friends. <laughs> <laughs> So there are those little details, sure, but all sure. of that is there. And yeah. there is, for instance, another element, which is me collecting flowers because my partner would come every day, other people would come. Really, it's the people outside who, who suffered a lot more than I did, I think. Mm. But they would bring me things. I had nothing to give back. So I would collect flowers in the morning and give them those flowers. That was my gift back. That is also part of the show. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, I didn't answer the other bit. No, I did. No, well, I yeah, I think you did. Sort of. Uh, and I mean, well, maybe just the, this this idea of the, the media looking back at you as opposed to the other way around. So, but, um, I've now been doing this for a very, very long time. You know, so over the years, um, you know, I've built a network. I have students across the globe. Uh, I, I'm a public speaker. I write. I take pictures. I work at many levels, um, and uh, part of that. I think resulted in in this very widely orchestrated and very powerful movement. Uh, I thought it was people power. It was a fantastic, you know, show of people power. But in terms of having the spotlight on me, it's true the spotlight was on me. But I look at everything I do as part of my social activism. And now that the spotlight was in me, I decided I would use that spotlight. And I, my being here today is part of that. Because what I'm also talking about is not me as such, but what I represent. And I think through this today, you know, your viewers out there will know about what is happening in Bangladesh. And for me, one of the questions to ask is not merely what my Bangladeshi government is doing, but what international governments are doing. The fact that you sell weapons to my government the fact that you sell surveillance equipment to my government and that despite the rhetoric of democracy and freedom, most foreign governments are far more interested in working with a pliant dictator than some messy democracy. 
is something I want to remind the average citizens. And I believe the onus is upon you to ask those hard questions to your government to ensure that your tax money isn't used in the wrong way. Good points. I will say on that exact note, one of the things that I worked very hard to do in the book, um, especially in these essays by me, which are trying to you know, describe what is the contemporary landscape of journalism, but also um, what are some of the critical questions we as viewers should be asking of images. It is one of my hopes that someone who reads the book will then be able to look at a photograph and not just say, I'm seeing suffering in Yemen or I'm seeing suffering in whatever location it is where the picture was taken, but will then ask the question of, and what role do I play in this? Yeah, how am I connected to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, maybe just to take it in a little different direction, um, what camera do you use? What's your favorite lens? What, what, uh, what do you find important about uh, the gear you use, if anything? I use the camera I have with me. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. But, um, do you use your uh, no, phone? Do you use a phone uh, when yes, necessary? Of course, in fact, yeah. within the show... In the show, you had an yeah, iPhone. Yeah. Ex yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I use it quite a lot. I mm. use it quite extensively. In fact, a lot of the reporting I was doing, I was doing with my iPhones at that mm. time. The reporting for which I went to jail yeah. was because of my iPhone photography. Right. Uh, that was for a practical reason. You know, it meant I could work at a level which perhaps would be less under the radar, more under the radar. Yeah, everyone's got a phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, I still got caught out. Um, I got, the equipment got smashed. I got beaten up. And I continued to work. Mm -hmm. What the police have today are my iPhones and my MacBook Pro. <laughs> they didn't know you could get another one, I guess. <laughs> I have not, but I'm continuing to work. You've been doing this now for 40 years. Can you point to anything concrete that's come out of this that's positive that you can say, okay, I know that my work made this happen, made this positive change. Can you point to anything in particular? I'll actually refer to something very tiny. Um, I left home at 17. I came back when I was 29. I didn't really know my parents as adults, and I wanted to know them. These were very special people. But I knew it was going to be very difficult. I'd lived a very independent life. And here I was, a 29-year-old living at home. You know, it, there's got to be problems. <laughs> <laughs> so there were problems. But one of the things uh, I hadn't anticipated was in middle-class homes in Bangladesh, you have home help. And there was a young boy called Mizan who used to clean the rooms where we used to watch television. Uh, and... We would sit there and watch television. He would sit outside the room to watch television, through the open doorway. Not very far away, but politically, socially, miles apart. One of the things we've done is we've used our calendar for our activism as well, whereas calendars before we used, had, used to have pretty pictures, flowers, landscapes, pretty women. We decided to use social documentary as... Um, the content of our calendar. And I, in in the calendar, I think it was in 1998, published a picture of Mizan watching TV. I gave a copy to Mizan. I gave a copy to my mother. The next day, Mizan sat inside that room to watch TV with us. A very tiny thing, perhaps, but very succinct and, for me, very powerful. And it was your parents that... Yeah. And do you think that it was... Nice. And, and this is maybe a broader question than this specific situation, but was there, there, the awareness wasn't there until the photo was shown to them or the photo itself forced them to kind of re, to, to say, you know what, I, I, have to, I have to address this? Does a fish know it's in water? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are surrounded. I, each one of us have so many prejudices and biases which we are not aware we of. Overlook it's them every day. only when we're confronted by it. And here was a, a very liberated educated, progressive woman mm -hmm. who has been confronted by her own son mm -hmm. about what was happening in her home every day. Mm. Uh, and this is going to lead me to, I guess, maybe our last mm -hmm. question, which, you know, you spoke of people who were disappeared or who people who came back to Bangladesh, but then they, they lost their voice. Um, you are a middle-class man who studied chemistry. Why, why do you still have your voice? Why are you able to go back time and time again and speak and create institutions that will continue to speak? I think, firstly, I'm not alone. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I am physically here talking, but there is a huge group of people around me and it's a collective struggle. One of the things I began to do, it was a conscious decision I had to make as a photographer. Um, I got into photography because I wanted social change. And I had to think of how best that social change might be affected. Certainly through photography and writing was one. But I felt if you've got to fight a war, you need warriors. And you need to build warriors. So I, the agency was a platform on which through which we could work. I set up the school. So they were now there are so many other young, bright photographers from Bangladesh doing work. Then I set up the festival itself. And while I'm not a politician, I am engaged in politics. And I have two areas of intervention, three areas of intervention, media, education, and culture. And I ensure that with that tripod, I exert pressure upon the political space so politicians cannot get away what they're used to getting away with. And in terms of having the voice, I think it is a collective voice. And sure, this was a phenomenal movement. Uh, You know, there were over a dozen Nobel laureates, uh, world celebrities campaigning for me, but there were people on the ground and people in Bangladesh taking huge risks to be doing it. And I don't think this is my voice. I think it is our voice. Uh, I'm just happy that I'm able to carry it. Great. Okay, that is a wrap of a fascinating show, if I may say so myself. And speaking of shows, we'd like to remind everybody that uh, Shahidul Alam, Truth to Power, will be on exhibit at the Rubin Museum of Art that's here in New York City through May 4th, 2020. The museum is located at 150 West 17th Street, which is just down the street from one of the original locations of B&H Photo. Hmm. Um, and Shahidul, if listeners would like to catch up on more of your work, which websites, Instagram, where could they go to see more of your work? work? Uh, um That's my own site in the agency, but I also run a blog, shahidulnews.com. Um, so those would be good, but there is the show coming up at the VNA um, next month, in th- later this month on the 13th in London. And we'll have all of this information in our show notes. Uh, and, yeah, and there's a book and that people book. should be buying and looking the at. The book yeah. should now have arrived at the Rubin. All right. <laughs> and Steidl, which is this fabulous publisher of books. Uh, I mean, Gerard came to our festival in March. He said, I want to do your book. I said, you know, I've got a show at Rubin in November. He says, give me the manuscript in August. I'll give you a book. <laughs> and he did. It was, yeah. a, I just came from Göttingen. And they worked incredibly hard. All shifts, weekends, and I've just been told that the book has physically arrived. Wonderful. It's called The Tide Will Turn. Yeah. It's edited by Vijay Prashad, but it also has a beautiful letter by the great writer Arundhati Roy. Ah, okay. Well, well. All right. Okay. Lauren, your new book is Conversations on Conflict Photography, and it's available now, right? Yes, it's been out since early October. Okay. And I was just flipping through it here early, and it's a, it's a powerful book that I definitely want to go back and revisit for sure. Thank you. Really, really good. And if people want to catch up on more of what you're up to, where can they go to? LaurenWalsh.com. Easy. Okay. And again, all this will be in our show notes as well. Lauren, welcome back again. It's always great having you as a guest here. Uh, Shadal, pleasure, honor having you here in our studio. Uh, It was a fascinating uh, discussion. Thank you so much. Hope to see you again sometime. Are you not a regular subscriber to our show? If not, all you have to do is head on over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or Spotify and sign up. It's absolutely free. Tell them Al sent you. Uh, In the meantime, uh, my name is Alan Weitz, and on behalf of Jason and John, thank you so much for tuning in today. Today.